We've got two scripture passages this morning, Old Testament scripture passage and an accompanying New Testament scripture passage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 25 can be found in your pew Bible on page 4. We're also going to be continuing our reading in Ephesians, and we're going to be reading Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 33, which can be found in your pew Bible on page 8,123. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word. May the meditation of our hearts, the words of our mouth, be pleasing to you as we consider what you have done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Turning now to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. The entire Bible could be named or renamed 
a tale of two marriages. Timothy Keller, in a sermon he once preached, said, The Bible begins with a wedding, and this wedding's original purpose was to fill the world with children of God, and it failed. Why? Because the husband in that marriage failed to step in and help his wife when she needed him. But at the end of time, there will be another wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And its purpose is to fill the world with children of God, and it will succeed where the first marriage failed. Do you know why? Because the first husband failed, but the second husband will not. The true Adam, Jesus Christ, will never let his wife down. He hasn't. He won't. Our theme this morning is the first marriage points us toward the final marriage. We have three points. The first is not I, but we. The second is opposite to tract. And the third is more than marriage. So let's start with that first point. Not I, but we. The beginning of verse 18 Something very jarring happens in the narrative of Genesis. Somebody who has been reading it straight through would be very shocked to hear the words that come out of God's mouth at this point. The Lord God said, it is not good. Everything God has created up to this point has been good, good, very good. He has blessed it. He has praised over it. And here, finally, at this point in the narrative, here, finally, at this point in the story of creation, we are told of something that is not good. And we're told it's not good for the man to be alone. If you remember, a couple weeks ago when I preached a sermon, I said we were created to worship God and enjoy Him forever. What I want us to think about by recollect, rec- recollecting that theme statement that I had is to put the emphasis on we. Think about it. God said it is not good for man to be alone. But was man alone? No, he had perfect fellowship with God, just God and Adam in paradise. What could not be good about that? And Tim Keller puts it like this. How could you be unhappy in paradise? Why would Adam be lonely? Why would he be unhappy there? There's only one possible answer, really. God deliberately made him to need someone besides God. Think about it. God deliberately made Adam to need someone besides God. This is the most humble act you could imagine. This is the most unself-centered act you could imagine. God made human beings to need not just him, but other human beings, other relationships, other selves, other hearts. How humble of God, how unself-centered of God, how other-oriented of God, how sacrificial in a way of God. What's Tim saying? He's saying, if God never had created Eve from the rib of Adam, it would have only been Adam saying, I was created to worship God and enjoy him forever. It's just me and God. 
Yet in God's sovereign will and decree, it was his intention that through the work of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we would not only have perfect communion and fellowship with him, but we would also have it with each other, being united to Christ and becoming his body. This is a large part of what it means to participate in the Lord's Supper. It's not just about you and God having this one-on-one interaction and taking the bread, taking the cup. It's you and all of the body of Christ together, united in communion with God and with each other. This is why God said it's not good for man to be alone. Because it was always God's intention that we would worship him and glorify him forever. Not I. That we, in Christ, would be a body of believers. Male and female. But God goes on. He also says it's not good for man to be alone. And so what is he going to do? He's going to make a helper suitable for him. And this is the second point. Opposites attract. Helper suitable for him. The word helper here in the Hebrew is military word. It's often used in the Psalms to describe how God comes in power to protect his people from enemies. And God uses it of himself. He says... He is Israel's help. So this is not a word that is meant to express an inferiority. This is a word that's meant to express the power of this individual to help another. And the word suitable here is a combination, actually, of two Hebrew words. It's translated as suitable for, or in other translations, helper fit for him, or the old King James, help me. Literally, it says, I will make a helper like opposite him. I will make a helper like opposite him. This is why this point is called opposite track. The question I want you to think of is, how can you be both like and opposite? How can you be both like and opposite? And that's if you compliment I want you to think of how two puzzle pieces are very much different. If they were not different, they would not fit together. But they fit together precisely because of those differences. That is what I mean by complementary. God is seeking to create a helper that is suitable to Adam because this helper is very much different than Adam and very much like this Adam. And that's what God does. He says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. But in order to increase Adam's understanding that this helper must be compatible to him, but also complementary, God brings him all the animals and beasts to the field that he's created. And Adam names each one. And you can imagine The octopus, or not the octopus, this is the land animals. The cow comes up. Adam says, that's a cow. Doesn't work for me. The lion comes up. That's a lion. That doesn't work for me. 
And on more and more on he goes. I'm, I'm, although I'm guessing he probably paused a little bit on the dog, you know, man's best friend. Like, maybe that's helper suitable. No, it's not going to work. And after this whole experiment, after this whole lineup of Adam naming the animals, taking his part and his, his, uh, his vice regency of the kingdom of God has given him, and his creative act of naming these animals, but for the man, no suitable helper was found. No suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place of the flesh. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, Finally! This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Bursts into poetry, bursts into song. He is excited about what God has done. God has made a helper suitable for him, like opposite. You see, this magnetism to the opposite sex is God designed. This magnetism to other human beings who are like us but very unlike us is purposeful. But this is what I want you to think of it is not God designed so that we could escape into the bliss of honeymoon marriage and relationship. It is not designed so that we can have these blissful, romantic experiences that bring us beyond this realm and, and we have these wonderful rom-com experiences where the end of the movie is not them fighting and yelling at each other but walking off into the sunset always to be happy again. You know the fairy tale ending, right? And they live happily ever after. Come on. No. The intention of the like opposite, complementary nature of Adam and Eve, of the man and the woman, is so that those differences could cause tension and create growth in us. Don't you understand it? If everyone was like us, we would never change. If everyone was the same, there'd be no progression. It is when we bump up against those differences in the way that we view the world. It's when we bump up against those differences in our dispositions and characteristics that we are forced to face our own pride and learn humility. We're forced to face our own hearts and where they are sinful. We are forced and given God's grace 
to set aside our own priorities and our own desires in order to understand the world from somebody else's perspective. And one of the most profound ways and deep ways that that kind of tension creates holiness, causes us to grow, is in the tightly knit, close union between a man and a woman in marriage. But it is not the only example. We're also called to have these iron sharpened iron relationships within the church, between brothers and sisters. And because of the fall, often when I sit down with a couple before they're married, I seek to remind them that you're marrying a sinner. And you're marrying a sinner. Two sinners getting married, getting thrown into a house to live together and have children and have to pay bills and, and deal with all the pressures of life. So much of marriage is not pointing out the sin in your spouse. It's realizing that what your spouse does is reveal the sin in your own heart. And what are you going to do with that? The point of deep relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ is not that you can point the finger at them. It's not that you can judge them. But it's that the speck in their eye reveals the log in yours. And what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? One of the main reasons God created somebody else besides Adam... One of the main reasons that God intended for us to be a community in fellowship, in union with each other, is that because of our interactions with one another, because of our struggles with each other, we need God more. We need Christ. We're humbled. And we're given the opportunity over and over again to let go of our own strength and effort in order to become more like Christ because we're a bunch of sinners bumping into each other. So the challenge is that oftentimes we have to guard against the idolatry of marriage in our society, in our own Christian culture. We have to guard against the idolatry of those of the opposite sex. That somehow men are going to be the one to save us or women are going to be the ones to save us. We have to guard against the idolatry of others who are made in the image of God in general. That we are told that part of the fall means that often we find in other people who are created in the image of God our hope and our desires that they will fulfill us, that they will bring us completion, that they will bring in salvation. What we see in the creature is glorious, but it's meant to point us to the creator. 
married or not, this description of the creation of Eve is meant to show us that we need each other. That the body of Christ is meant to be a body that is sharpening one another by the differences we have. That we're, we were created for community. That the communion we experience as fellow human beings is one way that reflect the image of God where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have lived together in perfect harmony for all eternity. And a microcosm of that union and communion in the human experience is the bond between husband and wife. We have to end with this final point then, more than marriage. Verse 24 and 25. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Um, this passage is about marriage. Many people would come up here and they would preach this passage and they would have all the applications be towards the married couples and I understand why that's done. It is about the complementary relationship between a man and woman, but it's also about more than that. That's why I chose our companion passage this morning to be Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 24, Paul directly ties not to the union between man and his wife. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me say that again. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul ties verse 24 of Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Not primarily to the union between man and his wife, but between Christ and the church. He says in Ephesians chapter 5 these words, and I want you to think about them because they are profound. He says, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That is Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That's our passage this morning. Verse 32, this is Paul's commentary on it. This is his exposition on it. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. What is Paul saying? He's saying that when Genesis 2, verse 24 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh that the writer, the author of the book of Genesis, God himself, was pointing to the mystery of the union between Christ and his church. Matthew chapter 22, if you know the story, the Sadducees, they come, and they want to trap Jesus, they want to trick him. So they talk to him about the resurrection. And they give him this silly question. If a woman ma marries a man and that man dies and doesn't have an heir, and then 
the next brother takes her, and then the next brother takes her, and then, and then the next brother takes her. Who will she be married to in the resurrection? And Jesus says something very important in that passage. He says, you don't understand the resurrection. In the new heavens and the new earth, men and women will not be given in marriage. They will be like the angels. You see, marriage as we see it now, as we experience it now, is not an eternal reality. But rather it is one that points to an eternal reality. What I mean to say by that is marriage is great, but it's not forever. Our union with the Lord and our union with each other in Him, that is forever. And if our relationships in marriage and our relationships with one another in community aren't building toward that eternal relationship, they aren't building that eternal relationship up, they're falling short of their intended purpose. What I want us to see is that here in Genesis chapter 2, we're not only being told about the first marriage between a man and a woman, we're being told that the first marriage between a man and a woman was always intended to give out, to become something greater. Christ is the one who left his father so that his side could be rent as Adam's was upon the cross in the creation of his bride. He came so that in his death and resurrection, we, his wife, could be united to him and become one flesh. In that naked and unashamed state that Adam and Eve had before the fall is what awaits us who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. We now live with no condemnation, totally accepted and loved by our Savior. And one day we will experience that in full. And when that gives way, and we experience without any hindrance the perfect communion and union with one another that we have with God through Christ Jesus our Lord, we'll realize that that was always what our marriages were pointing to, our relationships with each other find their fulfillment in. And to illustrate that, I want to share with you a lengthy but very wonderful quote from Martin Luther in a very important work called Concerning Christian Liberty. Pay attention to this because Martin Luther, I believe, summarizes perfectly what exactly Genesis chapter 2 and the creation of woman and the first marriage is pointed to exactly what Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is saying. The third incomparable grace of faith is this, that it unites the soul to Christ as the wife to the husband, by which mystery, as the apostle teaches, Christ and the soul are made one flesh. Now, if they are one flesh, and if a true marriage, nay, by far the most perfect of all marriages is accomplished between them, for human marriages are but feeble types of this one great marriage, 
then it follows that all they have becomes theirs in common, as well good things as evil things, so that whatsoever Christ possesses, that the believing soul may take to itself and boast of as its own, and whatever belongs to the believing soul, that Christ claims as his. If we compare these if we compare these possessions, Martin Luther continues, we shall see how inestimable is the gain. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sin, death, and condemnation. Let faith step in, and then sin, death, and hell will belong to Christ, and grace, life, and salvation to the soul. For if he is a husband, he must needs take to himself that which is his wife's, and at the same time impart to his wife that which is his. For in giving her his own body and himself, how can he but give her all that is his? And in taking to himself the body of his wife, how can he but take to himself all that is hers? In this is displayed the delightful sight, not only of communion, but of a prosperous warfare, of victory, salvation, and redemption. For since Christ is God and man, and such a person as neither has sinned nor dies nor is condemned, nay, cannot sin, die, or be condemned. And since his righteousness, life, and salvation are invincible, eternal, and almighty, when I say such a person, by the wedding ring of faith, takes a share in the sins, death, and hell of his wife, nay, makes him his own, and deals with them no otherwise than as if they were his, and as if he himself had sinned. And when he suffers, dies, and descends to hell, that he may overcome all things, and since sin, death, and hell cannot swallow him up, they must needs be swallowed up by him in stupendous conflict. For his righteousness rises above the sins of all men. His life is more powerful than all death. His salvation is more unconquerable than all hell. Thus the believing soul, by the pledge of its faith in Christ, becomes free from all sin, fearless of death, safe from hell, and endowed with the eternal righteousness, life, and salvation of its husband, Christ. Thus he presents to himself a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, that is, by faith in the word of life, righteousness, and salvation. Thus he betroths her unto himself in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in judgment, in loving kindness, and in mercies. Who then can value highly enough these royal nuptials? Who can comprehend the riches of the glory of this grace? Christ, that rich and pious husband, takes as a wife a needy and impious harlot, redeeming her from all her evils and supplying her with all his good things. It is impossible now that her sins should destroy her since they have been laid upon Christ and swallowed up in him. And since she has in her husband Christ a righteousness which she may claim as her own, and which she can set up with confidence against all her sins, against death and hell, saying, If I have sinned, my Christ, in whom I have believed, has not sinned. All mine is his, and all his is mine. As it is written in the Song of Solomon, My beloved is mine, and I am his. The first marriage points us to the final marriage. The Bible begins with the wedding. 
And it ends with a wedding. It begins with a wedding between Adam and Eve, between the first man and first woman. The fall that brought tension and frustration in that relationship, in all relationships. But it ends in a marriage that bring about its intended, brings about its intended purpose. The marriage between Christ and his bride, his church, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where there, that communion and that union, which every marriage is intended to point forward to, to typify whichever human relationship in Christ is meant to show forth will be unhindered and perfected. We will be with Christ, our bride, or Christ, our groomsman, we his bride, forever and always. May every relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ and every marriage exemplify that union that we have between Christ and his church. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray. We pray, Lord, that you would sharpen us in community. Help us to encourage and uplift one another, to pray for each other, that we may all be more conformed to the image of Christ Jesus, your Son. Help us, Lord, as your church, your bride, the body of Christ, be purified, that we may be presented to you on that day, blameless. We ask, Lord, that you would give us all in our marriages humility, that we would face the sin of our own hearts and our marriages and conquer it by your grace and the power of your spirit. We pray, Lord, for all relationships that we have in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. They, too, also would be used to show us our sin, to cause us to ask for humility and to depend more upon Christ each and every day as we pursue the communion and union and fellowship with one another as we await its perfection in the age to come. To Christ's name we pray. Amen.